Hey Westwood, it's Pastor Philip here, and uh, I just want to say hi. I'm sorry I couldn't be there with you today, uh, but I tell you one thing I'm very excited about is that Pastor John will be preaching, and today is the day that we are launching our Lent experience as a church. We're celebrating Lent here at Westwood. And uh, I know that all kinds of people have different baggage from Lent, but here's what we're doing here at our church. It's, it's, a, it's a moment where we can all lean in and have a conscious sort of uh, moment where we're attending to the person of Jesus in our soul, just slowing down, focusing on Jesus to hear his voice, to commune with him, and to be more connected as we ramp into Easter. In a lot of ways, like the way we do Advent, you know, we slow down and celebrate Advent, not just at Christmas, but the season leading up to it. That's what Lent is for Easter. And so we're going to take this time to really embrace the rhythms of Lent as a church. And so I'm super excited. My family's going to be a part of this. It's going to be really fun. We want every single one of us to be a part of this Lent experience. And to give you more details, here's John Cardona. Well, good morning. Yeah, I'm going to be giving you some more details here in, in a little while. But let me just say that this is something we're really excited about. It really is, as Pastor Philip said, an opportunity for us not just to go through some rituals, not with a legalistic mentality, but to say, Lord, how can I, with the intentionality of, of uh, fasting from some things and paying certain attention to others, how can I learn and train my heart and allow you to change my heart to rely on you more, to live in light of the realities of all that Easter represents. All that we celebrate at Easter, how can we, how can we live that out every day, not just at Easter? So we'll talk a little bit more about that um, throughout the sermon, but really do want to invite you to join us in that as an individual, in your classes, in your small groups, however God would have you to do that. Um, before we jump into the sermon, you know, it's not often that I get to be up here uh, in front of you all. And I just wanted to say a few words of encouragement that I, um, you know, that I wanted to be able to say to the whole group. You know, as I'm out in the lobby or as I'm meeting with some of you throughout the weeks or phone calls, emails, whatever, I get to hear about the way that God is using many of you in, as individuals and in your groups and classes. And it's really encouraging to me. Um, I, I just want to say, like, I was so encouraged over Thanksgiving time to hear of a number of you who opened up your homes over Thanksgiving or Christmas to people who didn't have anywhere to go. And you had large groups of people coming and, and you opened up your table in your home. And that was just super encouraging for me to hear about that. Um, I've heard of some Sunday school classes that are taking on low-income neighborhoods and directly intentionally serving those kids. And through that, getting to know and getting to serve their parents and building relationships there and the connection between that and Awana and student ministry and, and other things. It's been really, really neat. And another Sunday school class taking on uh, a lady coming on a difficult time in life and walking with her um, side by side with her through that. Um, met recently with some of the ladies who are involved in the quilting ministry, Dorcas Circle. And how encouraging to hear about how those quilts are being used as tangible expressions of God's love here in our communities as a partner with Union Gospel Mission and City Gates and Options Pregnancy Center and people in our church who are going into long-term like surgery and recovery and things like that and how they're now wanting to send those abroad to, to refugees. Just really, really, really encouraging. Missional communities getting involved in schools and supporting and praying for go-workers. 
uh, Bible studies being started in nursing homes. Guys, there's just so many different things that I don't often get to say. Boy, I'm so encouraged. I hope you're encouraged. And I just thought I would take this moment since I'm up here to, to say um, thank you for the way that you are serving each other and serving our community. It's really an encouragement. Would you uh, join me as, in prayer as we jump into our message this morning? God, um, we do consider it such a privilege to come before you, to gather collectively. We know this is not something that many of our brothers and sisters around the world can do so openly. And so we thank you. We consider it a privilege and one that we should take seriously, knowing that with that blessing comes responsibility, Lord. So may, as we gather, we ask that you would use this time for your purposes. Lord, move in our hearts Draw us closer to you, and then, Lord, use us for your glory the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you might not know this about me, but I am terrified of heights. I'm terrified of heights in a really ridiculous, irrational kind of way. Like, for example, um, I, I don't doubt the architects, I don't doubt the engineers, I don't doubt the construction workers, I don't doubt that the building is sound and safe, but I yet will still, if this is the edge, of, and there's some kind of railing or guardrail to it, like, I will be back here kind of doing one of these things, and if I'm trying to get to the edge, I kind of creep like this, and if anybody bumps me, I take a couple steps back. It's totally irrational. I believe that the people who built the building did a great job. There's no problem there, and yet I can't get that belief to move me to any kind of action, which makes it even crazier that for my 40th birthday, what I really wanted to do was go skydiving. (laughs) Just doesn't really make sense. But as what I really wanted to do, I've always wondered, what would it be like to just see the world, like not just from an airplane up there, but like, like kind of like flying. And so you can imagine how scared I was in this moment, 13,500 feet. I attached my life to some guy that I knew for about 10 minutes. Maybe a little bit longer, but not much longer. And we hop in this plane, and we make sure we're cinched in. And you know, I mean, I'm talking like, I better believe this guy doesn't want to smack on the ground at however fast we're going. Like, he doesn't want to. I'm just going to believe that he knows what he's doing, and that he has got my life in his hands, and he's going to take careful attention to that. So I'm looking out at 13,500 feet. I have a hard time doing that at like 100, 150 feet, right? But, but here we are at this moment about to jump out while the wind is screaming. And then, next moment, there it is, getting to see. And at that moment, it's, ah, oh, this is amazing, Wow. The the fear pretty much at that point was gone, and it was just, wow. And I'm telling you, there's there's an important connection here between what we believe and the action that we're willing to take. And I had to believe that this guy that I connected my life to was one that I could trust in such a way that I was going to latch in, and there was no going back. We were going out that door, whether I wanted to or not. So I had to believe and trust that I was in good hands. You know, what we believe matters. What we believe matters. You know, if we believe that the stock market is solid, then we'll invest, right? If we believe that it's weak, then we might not invest. If we believe that quality time with family and friends is important, then we will say no to competing offers. I had this professor in seminary, and he said it like this. He said, stated belief plus actual action 
equals actual belief. Stated belief plus actual action equals actual belief. In other words, what you say is one thing. What you do is what really matters. What we believe, so long as it will reveal, our actions will reveal what we actually believe and what we believe really matters. What you believe about Jesus matters. You know, he's, he's the most influential person in human history. So even if you're one who's here and you're saying, I don't know what I believe I want to invite you this morning to at least, if you're going to reject Jesus, reject the real Jesus. Not just some notion that you've heard of or made up. But, but belief, that kind of belief, isn't just for people who are deciding, like, do I, do I want to follow Jesus or not? This is for those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus and would say, I believe, and yet there are many times where my actions expose that There are still areas of my life that I haven't fully leaned into and trusted. Worry creeps up, anxiety, fear, insecurity. There's all these indicators that are saying, you're not believing me fully here in this moment. So belief is an issue that those of us who walk with Jesus daily need to examine as well. So as we journey through Lent toward the cross, we're going to be studying the seven signs that John lays out for us in his gospel account. Now, for those of you who are newer to the Bible, there are four accounts of the life of Jesus and his ministry recorded in the Bible. Each one is written to a different and particular audience with the unique stylistic influence of its author. John is known for using his symbolism. In fact, he doesn't use the word miracles, he uses the word signs. And he says these signs are not just mere demonstration of God's power, just kind of for the fun of it, they are to point you to something deeper. So each one of these signs is intended to point us to a deeper significance of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And while sometimes we kind of have to dig beneath those signs and kind of figure out what are they pointing, what's the meaning there, John makes his overall purpose very clear. In John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, near the end of his account, John makes it crystal clear what these signs are all about and what he's hoping we will get from them. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He says, let me just make it really clear. I'm going to take all the guesswork out. Here's what I want you to get out of all these signs. I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So today we're going to start at the first of Jesus' signs in in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And we want to see what Jesus wants us to, what John wants us to understand about Jesus and about ourselves. So the story starts off like this. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So John starts off kind of setting the scene to what's going on. He tells us who's there, um, what's going on, and where's it at. Third day. Um, this, is, this kind of pops up and people begin to wonder, okay, what is this third day a reference to? Is this some kind of symbolic reference to Jesus' resurrection? 
And while that might not be outside of John's style, it doesn't seem to be the case here because in chapter 1, verse 19, John starts setting out a chronology. And he starts saying things like, and the next day, and the next day. And so if you take John chapter 1, verse 19 as the first day, and if you interpret verse 40 as a new day, what we have here in chapter 2, verse 1, seems to be the seventh day of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, some would then say, interestingly enough, John starts out chapter 1, verse 1, with a clear reference to creation. In the beginning was the Word. And he's talking about Jesus. And so some commentators say, you know, it's interesting. It seems like maybe what John is doing here is talking about a new creation, about how Jesus has come to make things new. In fact, that would be consistent with his themes in chapter 2 through 4, where he continues to talk about the newness that Jesus is coming to bring. Now, whether that's exactly what's happening or not, don't know for sure. But what we do know is that this is early on in Jesus' ministry. He's only gathered five of his disciples at this time, and they've only been with him for a few days. He's not performed a miracle yet. He's not had any public teaching yet. And they are going to follow Jesus to this wedding. So they're at a wedding, and in Jesus' day, weddings were huge ordeals, right? In the Jewish culture, they were not just about, they were not just kind of like in our day where we say, hey, the the faster, the better. Let's kind of make it small, intimate. Um, This was like a whole village, whole community ordeal that um, was a huge celebration. And it started with the father of the groom making the arrangements for the wedding and for the engagement with the bride's family. And he would go there and make the arrangements, pay the bride price, determine what the, 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 the basics of the covenant. And then the groom would go back to his father's house and begin building onto that house a home that he would go and one day bring his bride to live in with him. This would take about 12 months during this betrothal period, oftentimes. And then when it was all finished, the groom would go with his groomsmen many times at night with like a torch-like Um, parade where they would go and get the bride, bring her back to this new home that's attached to his father's home. They would consummate the marriage, come out and have this huge feast that would last often for like a week where the groom's family was expected to provide plenty of food, plenty of wine. The whole village and all kinds of people are there and it's this huge ongoing celebration, a very big deal. So this is where we find Jesus and he's at this wedding in Cana, which is not far from where he's living in Nazareth, about four miles. And there's reason to think that maybe his mom has some kind of role in the wedding. While it's not clearly laid out, we get an indication of that because in the next verse, um, it says that um, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So Jesus' mother seems to have some kind of role, some kind of concern, because later as we're going to see, she also gives instructions about what to do um, to, the, to the servants there. So she's playing some kind of role, but she says, they have no wine The wine has run out. Now, this is the point where if we're, like, listening to a story, all of a sudden the record player, or it goes, and it just stops, right? Like, what? wait, what did you just say? Did you just say the wine ran out? Like, this this can't happen. 
Like this is a very important part of this celebration. The groom and his family are expected to provide plenty, plenty of food, plenty of wine. Like running out is not okay. It's not like in our day where we just say, okay, I guess that means the party's done, time to pack up, we're going home. It's all, you know, all the, like no, this is major shame on this family. You haven't provided well. Major shame happening here. And so Jesus says to his mother at this, at this statement, hey, the wine's ran out. He says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And men know this cannot be your new verse of the year, okay? Um, <laughs> woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so you see that woman, and you're kind of like, ooh, that kind of feels a little disrespectful. What's that all about? I mean, it, you know. But what, but what we need to understand here is that Jesus isn't being disrespectful to his mom. In fact, when he's on the cross in Matthew 19, he uses this same word when talking to her to make sure that she's going to be cared for after he dies and after he departs from this earth. He's not being disrespectful. What he is doing, though, is he's redefining their relationship. From this point forward, Jesus won't relate to his mother as his mother. He relates to her as, his, as her savior. He's saying that there's a change in our relationship now. And I have come only to listen to the voice and obey the voice of God, my Father, my Heavenly Father. And I've come to do and obey all of his will. His voice is the one I listen to. And so this is no longer a mother-son relationship. This is a mother-savior relationship. And that is what Jesus is doing. He's redefining. And so and there's this story later on when Jesus is inside of this house and a large group of people are with him, and his mom and his brothers come outside the house, and his disciples come in, and they say, hey, your mom and your brothers are here. And he says, well, who's my mom and my brothers? And he looks around the room, and he says, this is my mom and my brothers here. He's not saying I don't care about them, he's, but he's, he's saying there's a difference in relationship now. So when he says, what does this have to do with me, or translated sometimes, what does this have to do with us What he's saying is this isn't a mother-son kind of an issue here. The voice I'm listening to is God the Father, and he's the one that I'm going to be listening to. And then there's this statement, my hour has not yet come. Kind of this cryptic statement that we're told just enough to make us curious, but it's not resolved in this moment. But it's kind of one of those where you know, you need to know what that means. It's like when you're watching a movie. And you see some, there's this scene. Maybe, maybe somebody has, a, like, they pull out this piece of paper. And on this piece of paper, there's a name, or there's a phone number, or there's a date, or a place. And they look at it, and the camera goes to it, and then they just put it in their pocket. And you go, what was that all about? And you're not sure, but you know that's important. And you know you're going to need to know. So then the rest of the movie, you're kind of watching and you're listening for that. When am I going to find out what role that's playing? That's kind of like what's happening here. As we continue on in the book of John, we see that our is connected with Jesus' glorification through his death and resurrection. And there's an interesting refrain that happens three times, starting in chapter 2, then in chapter 7, verse 30, and then in chapter 8, verse 20, where Jesus says things like, my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then it changes in chapter 12, verse 20, and following specifically 23. All of a sudden, at that point, Jesus says, my hour has come. The time has come. And we're going to get to that a little bit later, up to why that's significant. So, he says, my hour has not yet come. And then his mother says to the servants, this is another reason why uh, scholars often think that his mother had some kind of role to play in the wedding. She says, do whatever he tells you. 
Now, Mary first approaches Jesus as his mother in verse 3, doesn't she? But Jesus makes clear that the relationship has changed. And now she responds to him as a believer in verse 5. Do whatever he tells you. A great summary of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. Far too often, we come to Jesus with our demands for him. This is what I need you to do for me, Jesus. The wine's run out. Fix the wine. Change my circumstances. Provide healing now. Fix that person. But that's not the way the relationship with Jesus works. He says, no, no, no. I've come to do the will of the Father. You come to obey whatever I say and to trust me, to believe Now, John continues on, he says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. When John brings us this clue, he doesn't just say there were six jars of water. A couple of things he specifies there. What kind of jars they were, the rites of purification, and how big they are. So about 120 to 180 gallons worth of water held in these these jars that were used for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, in Jesus' day in the Jewish religion, uh, uncleanliness was passed by touching anything or anyone that was unclean. And the result of that is it would cut you off from being connected and involved in your community, from being able to go and worship. And there were all kinds of different implications. You can read about some of that in Leviticus chapter 15. But Mark, another gospel writer, writes about this in Mark 7. And he makes some comments on this in Mark 7, verse 1 through 4. He says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and the copper vessels and dining couches. Holding to the tradition of elders. Now, this this means that there's nothing, these traditions are not instructions or laws that are written down in the Bible. These These are traditions that elders and years before them placed, that that rabbis put in place to keep people from even getting close to breaking the law. So they would say, if the law is there, let's put this tradition here that will keep us from even getting close to that. But then he goes on to specify, and he gives this example of coming from the marketplace. He says, so for example, people go to the marketplace. When you're at the marketplace, you pick things up, right? You pick up the fruit, and you're examining it. You're touching it. Is it ripe? Is it moldy? What is it? You know, you're picking up your cloth and your linen, and you're looking at the different things there at the market. But you don't know who's touched it before you, right? You don't know, did some kind of unclean person touch it before you? Did some sick person, a non-Jewish person, a tax collector? Who might have touched it? And you've picked it up now, and you've touched it, and then you're going to go eat, and you're going to defile yourself. Well, you can't do that. You need to cleanse your hands. And so John is making, he's saying that there's 180 gallons or so worth of water in these Jewish rites of purification kinds of um, jars here at the wedding. And what's interesting is that when you cleanse yourself this way, from coming from the marketplace, you're cleansing yourself from the sin of people out there. 
right? You're saying, I need to cleanse myself from all of those dirty people. You're not really saying there's any sort of gunk inside myself. It's them. Isn't that kind of the way we like it? It's much more comfortable that way, isn't it? When we can think of other people's sin without having to think about our own. But Jesus is about to turn this whole system upside down. There's a symbolic shift that Jesus is pointing to with this sign from water to wine, from one kind of purification to a new, greater kind of purification. So the story continues on. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out some of it and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. It's like, this is really good stuff. This is better than even the good stuff. Like, this is really good. But why are, why are you saving it till after we've had the other stuff? And I think this is part of Jesus' point. This is part of the, the symbolism here is that Jesus is saying, exactly, I have come to bring something better than you have ever experienced. Something that has that it's only been available to you now has been just this, this good wine, this wine, this water of the law. But I've come to bring you the wine of the gospel. He's like, I'm bringing you something far better. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 17, he opens up and he says that the law came first and was given through Moses, but grace and truth came later through Jesus. This first sign is actually embodying what we've been studying in the book of Hebrews. This first sign is showing that Jesus is fulfilling the law, bringing something new and better. So, story concludes here, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You hear how it finished? His disciples believed. Believed in him. What did John say was the purpose for these signs in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31? That we would believe. And his disciples believed in him. A couple of things that are interesting about that. What did they believe? They just believed that he could turn water to wine, so they were impressed. The new kind of greatest show in town. What was significant about believing in this? Sign. What did this sign point to that they were believing in? And why is this the first sign that Jesus performs? I mean, when you think about Jesus' ministry, you're going, man, Jesus, you could have kind of came out with a, with a bang, you know? Remember when you healed the blind person? Why not start with that? Or what about when you, you healed the paralyzed person so they could walk? I mean, that would have really turned more heads. Why, why this? Well, what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to look at three important symbols, their meaning, and what it means for us today and our belief. Because John makes it clear, he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, which means Savior, that he's the Son of God, he's fully God, fully man, and that by our belief we would find life and joy in him. So let's look at three important symbols, their meaning, and what it means for us today. We're going to have the symbol of the wedding Uh, The symbol of wine and the symbol of the hour. Symbol of the wedding. 
I believe, points to a future wedding feast celebrating God's salvation. So a, a wedding was not just a social event, but there was also this kind of theological understanding that someday there's going to be a greater wedding feast that we're going to celebrate. And Jesus stands at the hinge between both fulfilling what they're expecting and pointing to a great wedding feast to come. Listen just to one example, Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. He says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation So this wedding is a symbol. The reason Jesus jumps in here, it's a symbol of a future wedding feast that that celebrates God's salvation. And the meaning of it that we see here is that Jesus, the master of the wedding feast, came to turn our shame from our sin into deep, lasting satisfaction in him. Jesus didn't come in this moment to the wedding in Cana just to save the wedding feast. Jesus came to save our lives. But there was shame that was encountered at this wedding. There was shame. And Jesus came and he showed that not only can he remove the shame of this, you know, this awkward situation at the wedding, but the deeper shame that we all live under as a result of the brokenness that is within us and our relationship with God. So just as the wine runs out, you and I become very aware that there's a lot that runs out in us, isn't there? Our efforts run out. I'm going to try to be better, to do better, to pray harder, to trust more. I'm going to try. I'm going to be good. And those efforts somehow run out. Our resources run out. Our plans don't work out. Our talents aren't enough. And there's shame many times. And we don't know how to resolve that. See, the power is one, as one commentator says, the power of Jesus to transform water into wine is amazing. But the power to transform a rebellious sinner into a saint is even more remarkable. And that's what Jesus came to do. My friend Tony Morita says, becoming a Christian is not just about signing a doctrinal statement. It's about coming to a feast. It's about being invited to a wedding with the creator of the universe. But Jesus isn't just the master of this wedding ceremony. Jesus is indicating he's talking about the future wedding feast that's on his mind. And let me just read you a few verses about this wedding feast that is on Jesus' mind that we are invited to. Listen to this. Revelation 19, 6 through 9 says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. 
For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, us, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know that you're invited? You know that you're invited to this? But it's not just us. Listen to who else is invited. Listen to who else will be there. Sean says earlier, after I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they continued worshiping him. And in Revelation 21, verse 2, finally says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Can you imagine that wedding feast? People from every tribe and language and culture, they're celebrating God, celebrating his salvation. Can you imagine how beautiful, how diverse, how creative that will be? I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to be, to worship or to experience cross-cultural celebrations. But this past summer, I had the really unique opportunity of participating in a wedding with somebody in our church who was marrying a a lady from Kenya. And they had a full-on Kenyan wedding. And a couple of you were there with me at this. And I just want to give you a clip of what it looks like to celebrate, just kind of how this wedding celebration went, maybe how it might be a little bit different than some of ours. So here's just a little, a little clip from that. This is how the bride was being welcomed even just to come in and start to make her procession. And then this is on the way out of the wedding afterwards. I mean, there's celebration going on about this wedding. We are thrilled. This is no kind of solemn, like, okay, you may now kiss your bride and a little peck on the cheek. Like, this is, this is like celebration. And, man, people were dancing, and you should have seen my moves, man. Boy. Actually, it's a good thing you didn't. I made sure that was edited out of there. I, sorry about that. But, man, you just imagine. Imagine all the good food, you know, at this feast. The diversity. Imagine all the stories of lives changed of shame turned to deep satisfaction in Jesus. People from every tribe and tongue and language sitting around worshiping, telling you, this is how Jesus changed my life. What does this take away for us? Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom for this future wedding feast. Think about it. Think about it. In the traditional, in the traditional Jewish culture, the father sends, the father goes ahead and prepares and sets the grounds of the covenant. And the Father did this with Jesus before even the beginning of time with us on his mind. He pays the bride price, which he did with Jesus' very own blood. And then the Son returns to the Father's home to begin building onto that home a place where he'll go and bring the bride to join with him. And Jesus says in John 14, 3, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... What I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Do you hear this connection? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you, my bride, 
to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And then the Father sends the Son to go and to retrieve his bride, which is what Jesus will do one day for us. But, but Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, says that not only is Jesus saving us from our sins, but he's purifying us. He's sanctifying us. And so not only is Jesus the ultimate bridegroom, meaning that we, in Christ, we are perfectly, lo- perfectly loved, but it also means that he didn't come just to save us, but to change us, to purify us, to renew us. It's as Max Locato has famously said, Jesus loves you just as you are, but loves you too much to leave you as you are. This is Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom. There's the sign, uh, the symbol of the wine. Now let me just make clear up front here. This isn't, uh, this isn't a sermon about, is it okay to drink wine? Is it not okay to drink wine? Was Jesus okay? Was that real wine? Was it not wine? I... Yeah, it was wine because why else later in the New Testament are there instructions about not getting drunk and stuff like that or accusations? So yeah, but that's, that's not the point is we're going to see here Jesus is about so much more. He takes this symbol of wine to mean the abundant, overflowing blessing of God. When there's the mention of wine in the Jewish culture and in the, and in the Hebrew text in the Old Testament, there, is this, there are these images that come to mind of waiting and looking forward to the future day when God's promised Savior would come and bring justice, blessing, and new life in his kingdom. Listen to just a few of the verses, and then the significance then of Jesus turning water into wine in a pretty abundant kind of way. In Joel 3.18, it says, And in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. A spring will go out from the house of the Lord. Jeremiah 31.12, They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and they will never languish again. Hosea 14.7, They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Amos 9.13-15, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Do you hear just that abundance, that blessing, that joy, that gift from God, that God's hand involved and he's using this as a symbol to say this is the overwhelming, abundant blessing of God. And Jesus steps into this wedding where the wine has run out. And the meaning is this. Jesus is the source of God's blessing and life. Life, Leviticus 17.11 tells us life is in the blood. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus holds up the cup, celebrating the Passover, but beginning to use covenant marriage-like kind of language. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant made in my blood. And he's talking, he's using the image of wine, but the life that's going to be available through 
him. And what kind of life? Jesus knows that for us to drink the cup of joy, he must drink the cup of suffering. For our shame to be removed, he must take shame upon himself. And Jesus does this in a pretty abundant kind of a way. He takes 120 to 180 gallons of water and turns it into wine. People have done the math and figure that comes to, say, an average of 800 bottles of wine. Okay, was Jesus trying to get them sloshed? No. No. Jesus, I believe, is thinking of some of these verses that we just read, and he's like, overwhelming, abundant blessing is what I'm bringing you. Just like, this is a symbol. This is pointing to something. Remember, this is a sign that's pointing to something. So here's the question for us. Where else are we looking outside of Jesus for this kind of joy? Because here's the reality. Wine runs out. But Jesus' joy doesn't. What are we looking to that is temporary, that cannot fulfill, that cannot deliver? It will run out. What are we looking to? And when we find that we're not full of joy, it's an indication that somehow we have looked to someone or something else. So here's the takeaway for this. Happiness outside of Jesus is temporary and it runs out, but Jesus brings lasting, overflowing joy. Lent, the way this connects with Lent, Lent is about grounding ourselves in the never-ending joy and freedom that we find in Christ alone. Every day is an Easter celebration. It's us saying, what can I identify that I've been actually looking to to bring me joy, comfort, stress relief? That's supposed to be Jesus in my life. So what can I look to? How can I better tune my heart to depend on him? Finally, and briefly, the hour. The hour. This is a symbol, as we said earlier, of Jesus' glorification in death and resurrection. And I already said that there's three times where Jesus is saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then it shifts in John 12, verse 20. When these, this group of Greek people are interested to come worship Jesus. Greek people are outside of the Jewish family, outside of the Jewish culture. They're not a part of the family, the people of God. And it's at this moment when they come that Jesus for the first time says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Where it's another way of Jesus talking about his coming death, the necessity of his death and resurrection and the life that will come. What does this mean? It means that Jesus' mission was to draw all people to himself. Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, Olympians. What's the takeaway? We must join Jesus in inviting all people to Jesus' marriage feast. Jesus would later in his ministry tell a parable of, to explain what the kingdom of God is like. And he would describe this father 
and this wedding feast and how he's inviting people to come to the wedding feast, but he's getting these lame excuses of why people can't come. And they're turning him down. And so finally the father says, fine, then go out to the streets and invite everybody. Anybody you find, invite them, bring them, come. If they don't have the right clothing, clothe them. Bring them to the wedding feast. Go and invite all people. Do you realize of the world, 7.2 billion people, there are around 3.2 billion who have yet to receive even one invitation to the wedding feast. You understand that they have not received one invitation. That is not acceptable to our God who came to pour out his blood that all people, all people would be invited. All shame would be turned to satisfaction in him. I pray that there will be people who will be raised up. There will be students from the student ministry. There will be people in the retirement years, which I've heard already a number of you doing, which is also hugely encouraging, who will say, we're going to go and we're going to invite all the nations to the wedding feast. But we've got to step up and go. We've got to say that our belief is not just here. Our belief is action that gets us moving. By the way, that doesn't mean that we stop inviting people here. Says research shows that on average it takes people hearing the gospel around seven times before maybe they'll believe. So that means we need to stay active in inviting people and sharing the gospel here, but we also need to be disturbed that it's not okay that some people can hear five, seven, 10, 15, 20 times before 3.2 billion people hear it even once. So this is not an either or, this is a both and. What you believe matters. And John wrote this account clearly. He says very clearly that you and I would believe, that all peoples would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, he's the, he's the bridegroom, and that in him we would have life, joy abundant, and so would all the nations. How will you respond? Will you join me and praying. Father God, we as those, of you, those who are your bride are overwhelmed, Jesus. Overwhelmed, Father, that you would send your son, Jesus, to redeem us by his own blood. We confess that we often do not look to you for what is available, for the overwhelming joy that we have available in you. And instead, we settle for so many other temporary things that run out. Jesus, thank you that you have come to save us. As you save us, purify us, renew us, and send us out to the places where we live, work, learn, and play, and then send us on airplanes that we would go far to tell people who have never heard. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Pastor John, for that message, giving us a glimpse of, of the, the 